everyone. Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. I am your host, Stacey Hagenbotham, and this is your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And today we have an awesome show for you because we have got a brand new Raspberry Pi. Yay! We've got new stuff from Sony ready to take on the Amazon Echo. I don't know if that's a yay or a boo. I was waiting for Kevin's <laughs> thoughts no, there. I'm on the fence. All right. We've got cheaper watches and new watches in the wearable department. We've got update from last week because we didn't talk about new developments in the standards community. Mm. And our guest this week is Chad Curry, who is the managing director for the Center of Real Estate Technology at the National Association of Realtors. And we're going to talk about, you got it, bringing smart houses and realtors together. And I'm really curious to hear the interview because there's actually a lot of opportunity for IoT type connected devices in the home real estate market. I'm finding more and more realtors I talk to are really getting into these things. So this is going to be cool. It's totally cool. Okay, so let's get this party started with the Raspberry Mm. Pi. Always room for pie. Always room. So latest and greatest. And this is like only a few months. Like, yeah, actually like two months after the, no, three months because it came out November. The Pi uh, Zero. The Pi Zero. This yeah. is a better equipped Pi. This is the $35 Pi. And this has integrated, thank you, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth <laughs> on board. So everyone's like, this is the this is the Raspberry Pi for the Internet of Things. Yep, yep, yep. This is nice because I don't believe the previous Pis had integrated connectivity. Uh, you could always do add-ons with boards and things like that. They're doing this at the same price for the Raspberry Pi 2, which you can still get for $35. But why would you? Because for $35, you can get a faster chip. It's a 1.2 gigahertz, 64-bit quad-core chip. Uh, they're saying it's 10 times the performance of the original Raspberry Pi, which that makes sense. It's been four years now since they, they debuted that. Um, this it's, is the first 64-bit Raspberry Pi, which is big because you can turn this into like a little mini server if you wanted to. Yep, yep. Uh, One of the things I like that they did over um, the Raspberry Pi folks, it's fully compatible with the original Pis and all the accessories and such. All the they tried to keep all the pins in the same spot. I think they only moved like one LED indicator. You know, so if you've got like add-on boards from the older Pis, you should still be able to use them with the Raspberry Pi three. Oh, that's nice. So all the stuff you bought. Yeah. It's still good. Still good. Exactly. Exactly. So I think it's still Broadcom that's powering this, right? It is still a Broadcom chip. Uh, Uh They're still, Uh I was going to say, in bed with Broadcom. Uh, (laughs) Hey, now. I I don't know where that came from. Let's not go there. Um, That wasn't supposed to be anything (laughs) negative. Um, But you can't, unlike with like the Arduino or other things, you cannot buy the chip that powers the Pi separately. So that's something worth noting because you could buy the other chips that are the brains behind like Arduino or any of those others. You can buy those separately, but not with the Pi. And if you have kids, I should tell you that Kano, the the computer for kids, I should say, that I put together with my daughter and loved so much, they actually have something, they have a new computer coming out soon that will work with this Pi and they're going to be available for pre-order for one nine or one forty nine. They won't ship till June. But if you want, you can buy this version of the Pi, and you can just download the the Kano software on it today, and it'll mm-hmm. work right there. And I only say that because I really liked the Kano, and I thought it was a really cool kind of OS and system for teaching my nine year old about like, hey, here's the parts of a computer, and here's how to like program your own stuff in Minecraft. Which she was like, woo. Yeah. 
from a, a software perspective, just in case people are interested, you can still use all the old software, the Raspbian uh, Pi software image. They are still keeping that same 32-bit software, but they're going to consider making that a 64-bit operating system in the future. Because, well, you know, I mean, you've got the hardware that can support it, so maybe it makes sense. Okay, so on the next topic, Sony and its new Amazon Echo wannabe. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, this is an interesting prototype device that Sony debuted at Mobile World Congress last week. It's called the Xperia Agent. It's not yet for sale, and they don't have any potential dates or anything like that, but they were showing it off. It's very similar to an Amazon Echo. It looks has a similar form factor, although it's more... Uh, it's not so quite cylindrical. It gets tapered at the top, and that's because they have this rotating ball that actually has a camera in it and a projector. So unlike the Echo, it can actually project information so that you know if you ask questions about maybe the stock market, it could just show you uh, the, the stock market numbers at the time or something. It's a small projector. I mean, it literally looks like it's projecting maybe a two-inch square down on a tabletop. It's going to work through voice, so just like the Echo, you'll be able to control it, ask questions, just like any personal assistant. Also through gestures, because it has the camera. They haven't really explained what those gestures would be or what you would do. Um, it will also potentially, they said, be tied to your smartphone. So that way, using your smartphone for information and for presence, when you walk into a room, it would see you, get information on you, and literally set the room up in a scene that is custom to you. Turn certain lights on, perhaps, turn music on to a certain station, and so on. So it's like jam-packed with sensors, and it has a lot of potential, but it is still just a prototype at this point. Oh, see, that seems really very close to prototypes I've seen from like, man, this was even like almost a decade ago. Um, but I'm really excited about this. The concept, I think, was Frog Design had something called the the Room E, and it had a projector, it had cameras, I think it used modified Kinect cameras, actually. And you would gesture, <laughs> and it would turn on lights if you gestured to a light, or if you said, you know, lights on, it would turn whatever you were gesturing at on, for example. And if you were looking, it used also like its image recognition to understand mm -hmm. if you were looking at it. So if you were addressing the device as opposed to another person to ask it a question. So you never had to do anything like funny wake words. So it was really kind of cool, but it was also super clunky and kind of like weird to set up. Mm -hmm. But the other cool thing about the camera was then you could interact with what was projected on mm. the screen because the camera could see what you were interacting with, which was really kind of fun. It's kind of like the surface table, right? That sounds cool. Now this, again, the, the projection is really small, so I don't, at least at this point, it's small, so I don't know if you'd be able to interact with it or anything. I think it's more just for information. And I like the idea that, as much as I like the idea of gestures as well, I personally prefer voice control over gestures any day of the week, and I found that out long-term using my Xbox Connect. I voice control a thing all the time. I could do gestures for things, but I tend not to. It's just voice always seems easier to me. I think it depends on kind of what you're doing. Voice is great when your hands are full, but you do have to think a lot more. Like I I found when I'm controlling the Echo, I often give it the wrong command because I've got like five different lighting commands for it. So I'm like, oh, I'll be in, in one of the mm. rooms and I'm like, oh, so-and-so turn on living right. room. And then I'm like, don't, I'm at the kitchen. No. And you know, then she's like, what are you talking about? So yep. in a yeah. situation where I was like, hey, just turn on the lights. And then I was gesturing and both of those things could be put together to turn on what I wanted on. Maybe because I'm not mm -hmm. very articulate. <laughs> that would be really nice. 
It's tough, but you know what? It would also help if the natural language processing were improved, which it, it, it that, is getting That's improved. on me. <laughs> so that way you could be a little more vague. I mean, obviously, if you give it the wrong light to turn on, that's, that's exactly what's going to happen. That's user error. That's what we call user error in the industry. But you're right, though. There are certain phrases that have to be very particularly spoken, especially, like, say, with the, the triggers and skills well, that the Echo yeah, is using we'll these days. I mean, so, that, that yeah, I, I'd like to see more freedom more and, and improvement and there. And I, I will also take a moment to say that I am so sick of this weird, like, isolationist mm-hmm. perspective. I feel like the people who design the smart home scenarios must like not live with people because they're like, Oh, when you walk in, it's going to play your music and do whatever you want and set the lighting <laughs> for you. And I'm, I'm like, okay, how many people actually walk into their like house, like their actual home and live alone and don't have other people to contend with when these things are happening. Cause if I walked in and like my music played, I guarantee you that my husband would be like, Oh my God, why is this happening? Who are you, Stacy, in the Royal We? I'd be like, I'm the programmer of the house. Ha ha. Yeah, that's that's definitely a good point. I think it's conceptually it's interesting. Is it practical? For a lot of people, no. Exactly. I'm just imagining my nine-year-old if we gave her her own music and it just oh, whenever boy. she walked in. We'd all be like jamming down to like, oh, I don't even know. Calvin oh, Harris. That's who it'd be. It'd be Calvin Harris and Taylor Swift. Kevin's like, that's not so yeah, bad. I could live with that. I could live with that. Yeah. Um, okay, so. <laughs> Cool things, so no pricing, prototype. Yeah, still a concept. So much stuff in there. I bet it's it would be so expensive. Mm, Sony doesn't sell cheap stuff, so right off the bat, I would agree. There you go. Okay, well, we'll look for things like this. I imagine many people out there, maybe not many, but some of y'all out there probably have built similar things. Feel free to tell us about it because I'm kind of curious. Thoughts on this because it's a big, fun topic. Next topic, watches. Hmm. The Fitbit has a new watch out, the Fitbit Blaze. They'd marketed it earlier. They did. It's shipping now, and I don't have one. I don't know if I want one. I think Why is that? Well, I think my next like wearable is going to be something that has my heart rate. Mm-hmm. And I don't, does, let's see if this has Oh, it has it. It has it the has pure, pure, pure pulse heart rate. Yep. And okay, so maybe this would be mine. I just, I feel like $200 is kind of a lot, but. It is a lot. I mean, this is their, we'll call it a flagship device. It's got a totally different design than their prior devices. It looks more like a regular watch. It looks uh, like the Apple Watch. I didn't want to say that, but yeah, it does. It, it's <laughs> with the with the corners cut off. So it's, you know, octagonal and, but it does, it looks more like a traditional watch than their prior products, which look like tracking devices. So, uh, I, you know, again, it's their, it's their flagship and it does everything. Everything that I think most people would want, like you said, it's got the heart rate monitor. It does include call and text notifications and calendar alerts, so it has a little bit of smart watchiness to it. Um, you can record running, cycling, cross training, etc. Tracks your steps, your distance, calories, floors, climb, auto sleep. It's got a five day battery life. It's nice. I, I will say it's nice. I actually just bought something different for about the same price. That does all the same stuff, plus it lets me store and play wireless music on it. Ooh, what'd you buy? I got the TomTom Cardio Plus Music device. Oh, I was uh, looking at that, yeah. It was it was like $25 more than this, and that was actually a um, on sale. So you would probably spend more if you paid full retail. But I'm very happy with it. I mean, it's great for everything we just said. Plus, I have four gig of storage to put music on and go run and with the GPS and the heart rate monitor that's built into it and, and listen to music at the same time. All right. And remember that because we're going to get to music in just a minute. Okay. 
But first, we should tell you, also in smartwatch news, well, maybe I'll pick up the Fitbit, please. I'm thinking about it. All right. Go for it. Smartwatch news. Pebble Time has actually lowered its pricing. Yay. Yeah, that was actually the, it's done it on, I believe, two devices, the time and the time round. The time and the time round, but the time steal stays the same. Okay. Okay. Because the, the round versions of the Pebbles haven't been out that long. No, they haven't, which makes me wonder, are they just not selling? Mm, I do not know. I haven't seen sales figures or I think last I heard they had over a million sales as of, oh, I don't recall when it was, but I haven't heard any numbers in a while is, is what I'll say. So the time is $149.99 and the non-round time- Non-round one. <laughs> round, let's just call it the round one, is $199.99. Okay, it's $200. Right. Just, Both got a $50 price cut. Thank you. Let's You're welcome. Because that was just too much. Too many nines. I'm just going to round you guys because we're smart. <laughs> and the time steal is still 250 Yeah, I actually had a, a Pebble Time that I sold to somebody at a discount because I wasn't using it. Part of me says maybe I shouldn't have done that because they did add some health features back in December. And, you know, it's using some sensors to track things like sleep and activity and whatnot. It just wasn't granular enough for me to be that desirable. You know, a dedicated fitness tracker with a heart rate monitor, that's kind of where, where I was going. So I have my ancient first Pebble that mm-hmm. I loved because it was, it did exactly what I needed it to do. And I still wear like my one-off tiny little tracker. And I've stopped kind of wearing it because I tend to wear my ring, my ringly now ah, when I need to. For be, notifications. For notifications. And I also carry my phone more places, but I'm wondering as the weather gets warmer and I start ditching my phone because I'm not wearing pockets as often, mm-hmm. if I'll strap it, if I'll be like, oh man, now I need to upgrade my smartwatch again. Mm, that could be. It's that like could seasonal. be. Even though you had the older Pebble, I think, and, and you can correct me if you know, I think you got the time interface that they launched last year. I did. As, as a software update. Yeah, which I liked. You know, it shows you past, present, and future stuff. And it was an interesting take on things. I liked their interpretation of it. Change is not, I'm, I'm not one to be like, ah, change is scary. <laughs> um, but I, I tended to use my watch solely as a watch. Ah. And then I only had notifications for like texts. And that was pretty much it. Mm-hmm. And I tend to keep my phone on silent. So the watch or the ring is the only thing I have that's like, hey, go pick up your phone somewhere. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. I'm, I'm weird though. So. Ah. Hey, everybody, everybody's different. You know, we should mention um, to folks who just bought a Pebble Timer or Time Round, if they bought it after January 21st at the higher price, you can reach out to Pebble by April 1st and get a price adjustment on the difference. No joke. Yep. <laughs> 50 bucks. So there you go. That's nice. Mm-hmm. All right. Back to music because I saw this and I want it so much. I think it's so cool. I may actually support it. Um, so this is... Hang on a second. I have to say, before the show, as we were talking about what to talk about, Stacy was gushing over this thing. So if it's not apparent in her voice right now, trust me, she is dying to see this thing. I love it. Okay, so this is called The Mighty. And this is... It's an iPod shuffle for your Spotify playlist, basically. That is like... I don't know who called it that. Maybe they called it that. But that is what it is. So you yep. need to have a Spotify account. Mm-hmm. And it has to be premium. And you basically sideload all of your Spotify songs that you have. You have the ability to like download certain songs, download your songs for offline listening (laughs) when you have a Spotify premium account. So then you just sideload those onto this like little device that is, it's like 1.75 inches, I think. 
Yeah, it, uh, it 1. looks one point five inches square. It, yeah, I was just gonna say it's a little square with a basically a, not like a jog dial, but a round button placement. It very much looks like a an iPod Nano or a Shuffle rather, and uh, there's not much in it. I mean, it, it, there's there's a battery, there's four gig of storage, there's uh, wireless connectivity for Bluetooth headphones. There's also a regular headphone jack. There's Wi-Fi that, for actually streaming it over. Oh, you! I didn't realize. I thought I had. I thought you had to do that over USB. Very cool. No, it's Bluetooth Wi-Fi. So sweet, sweet. Anyway, it's such a nifty little device. And again, this is not something that would make maybe that would sell gajillions of copies, units, units, units. Mm -hmm. But man, I'm so glad this is being crowdfunded. Although I don't think it's made it to its its goal yet. So it's seventy nine dollars for one of these babies, or you can. Kickstarter. Kickstarter. Right. You can also pledge $5 and get an invisible one. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think I won't do that. <laughs> so it has raised 180000 uh, as of now. That's $10 and you can have a photo of one. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> they've got a sense of humor. So they've raised about 180000 of 250000 I'm going to back it. It's going to ship in November. We'll see if that actually happens. I am kind of concerned about licensing. Hopefully Spotify works with them. Hopefully the licensing of the music, like I can see how there might be problems. I don't know about that. And and I'll tell you why. I mean, if you can already download music with a Spotify premium subscription to listen to offline on your phone, I can't really see the difference to pushing it across one more wire to another device. There might be intelligence or DRM associated with the app on the phone. Well, typically, because I believe Microsoft used to do this way back when with the Zune, you could download all the music you wanted from your subscription, but you had to resync the Zune with your computer so it could go and double check your subscription status every 30 days or less to make sure that you still were paying. If not, then it would automatically DRM lock all of the songs. And that's what I'm assuming would happen because with Spotify, the same thing also, like you have to... Mm-hmm. It has to link every couple of, I think it's every 30 days, maybe. I'm not, right. I've never paid attention. So anyway, I love this because I like to go out without my phone. I love the idea of having this like little tiny clippy thing on when I go running or working out. And maybe then I wouldn't need a smartwatch that could store music. Mm-hmm. No, it's a fair point. So ta-da. All right. Oh, good luck, guys. Good luck. Looks cool. Mighty. All right. Now, industrial news. We didn't talk about this last week because I forgot which happens, but the (laughs) occasionally, occasionally (laughs) there was trouble in standards land. And let's see if we can get this right with all the acronyms. (laughs) Oh boy. I know. Okay. We've got a new foundation. It is called the open connectivity foundation called the OCF. And this new consortium includes Intel, Microsoft, Samsung, Qualcomm, and a whole bunch of other vendors. And they're going to push what's known as the IOTivity standard going forward. And this standard is used for discovery of devices and like communicating what they can do. Mm -hmm. Now, you guys might be going, wait a second. Some of these guys have their own standards, right? Yep. Qualcomm, for example. Qualcomm had all join and they actually formed the all scene alliance with some of these. Microsoft actually was a premier member. They were really important. They paid. And Electrolux and some of the other kind of companies. And now they're in this other organization. And Mm. then Intel 
When Intel launched their foundation, which they called the Open Internet Consortium back in 2014, I actually wrote about it and I called it the Intel launches a Qualcomm free standard for the Internet of Things, (laughs) because that's essentially what it was. Both kind of groups were pushing the same type of standard, which was device discovery. That never happens with standards. Never. Never. So mm. everyone was like, wait, what does this mean? What? The OCF? So here's here's the bottom line. What I discovered in talking to people, and this was not easy because no one ever wants to admit that <laughs> things may not have been rosy. Yeah. The Qualcomm folks that were working on the development of AllJoin, that whole team has actually decamped and gone over to Intel. So those guys are now working at Intel, which I imagine had no small bit part we're, to play. We're leaving and we're taking our standards with us. <laughs> <laughs> so while the All Seen Alliance still exists and they're still working for the good of, you know, the Internet of Things and the standard, blah, 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 it looks like almost all of the code and development is going to be happening under the Open Connectivity Foundation. And we should expect to see kind of most of the work happening there for device discovery. Now, most of this looks like a licensing issue. And I am not going to get into the arcane politics of standard settings organization, nor the really super duper arcane politics of licensing, because it is a doozy, y'all. But that's kind of what seems to be driving this is how to license the standard and who has to pay if we use this technology. Mm -hmm. So it's rather interesting to me after watching Intel and Qualcomm go at it in the chip business for the past I'll say 10 years or so when it comes to mobile and desktop slash laptop. And now they're fighting it out slash working together for the IoT chip business. Well, what they've done here is it's nice, right? You're like, oh, yay. Mm-hmm. Now there's there's one less standard, right? Is what it kind of feels like. That's what Even it feels like. Not everyone's admitting this. But yeah, it's essentially one less standard. But mm. it's by no means a singular standard because right. HomeKit is trying to do the same darn thing, only it's closed and it's Apple. And mm-hmm. then Google with Weave, their mm-hmm. Weave, not Nest's Weave, mm-hmm. uh, which may or may not be doing this, <laughs> is also doing this. So we can't really have like some singular standard when we have two of the largest players in the industry from the handset side anyway. Right, right. Saying, yep, we like our standards better. Let's try to make these work. Yeah. But we could say, hey, you know what? Handsets, not needed. We're going to go with gesture control and voice. Smell you later, Google and Apple. What do we think? No? Mm, no, I think the smartphone isn't going away anytime soon. Yeah, probably not. In that regard, no. It'd be fun to watch someone try, though. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with that. Smell you later, Apple and Google. Let's see how far they get. Okay, so that was that was one on the kind of more industrial side of things or the more kind of enterprisey, less fun gadget side. And let's see, what else do we have here? We have, we have, it's time for our guest. We have a guest, that's right. Like we said, it is Chad Curry, the Managing Director for the Center of Real Estate Technology. And if you stay tuned, he is going to talk to us about how to talk to your realtor about technology, giving smart hubs as a closing gift, mm-hmm. and how your MLS listings may change. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham. Our guest today is Chad Curry, Managing Director of the Center for Realtor Technology at the National Association of Realtors. Hey Chad, how are you doing? 
I'm great, Stacey. Thank you so much for having me on here. Oh, man, I'm so excited. So I met Chad a couple, gosh, months ago, and we had this awesome conversation all about like the smart home. And he told me basically why realtors are interested in this. And Mm -hmm. I thought it was fascinating. So Chad, why don't you tell our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, here's the thing is, is we're an 108 year old uh, association with 1.1 million members and they are in more homes uh, than anybody else. You know, they sell about uh, 5 million homes a year. There's a lot happening in this space right now. And, uh, you know, by 2020, there are estimates of, you know, 26 billion to 250 billion IOT devices being connected to the web. And so we've got to get ahead of that. Um, and so that's why we started this lab. I, when we talked before, you you had talked about improving the existing home stock. And one way to yep. do that is to get maybe new homeowners on board with sensors that showed them things like, hey, your air quality could be yeah. improved. You know, yep. sensors that show them their air quality could be improved. And then they yep. could make investments in their home, which yep. then boosted the value of the home and the realtor's happy and the homeowner's yeah. happy. Yeah. Um, is that a vision that you're still pursuing or is it is that, okay? Yeah. yeah so the, that, that is predicated by, I mean, if you think about, um, you know, Fitbit, you didn't care about taking 10,000 steps until you got one of those darn things. Right. And that's kind of what we think is going to happen with environmental quality sensors. I mean, you've got this invisible air around you, you're breathing and you have no sense of what's in it. And we think as a closing gift, uh, what if a realtor gave a homeowner a hub and some environmental quality sensors that could allow that homeowner to understand what the CO2 levels are for the home, what the temperature and humidity are for the home, what the particulate matter levels are for that home and the VOCs. And those metrics are going to help them understand how they're living. And those things affect our health greatly. NIH just put a study out a few months ago, actually, about CO2 levels outside. And it was, it was focused on commercial properties, office spaces. And they talked about what a difference a regular office space makes compared to the green plus or green office spaces that have, you know, air filters that are um, um, much more, um, much improved, uh, we'll say. Um, And that's what we want to bring to the existing home stock. We want to make it so that people who buy an existing home, because millennials are clamoring for existing homes. And so we want to be bring things to them that can help them have a better quality of life in those existing homes. Homes that were built a hundred years ago that didn't, they weren't considering air quality or temperature and humidity at that time. But if you could mitigate problems like mold or bacteria growth uh, by monitoring what your humidity levels are in a home, you're going to go a long way to having a better quality of life in that home. And we think our membership can be a part of that uh, partnership. What's really interesting is if you start taking that a step further and you give people the tools and make them familiar with it in their homes, they Mm -hmm. could actually take that to, you know, things like home water testing. And then you could get activism on the scale, you know, that you could see maybe not a prevention of something like Flint, Michigan, but I mean, if the people there were empowered enough or had the data that said, holy cow, my water is really toxic. Yeah, this is this is about improving the housing stock and quality of life for everybody, and and that's exactly right. Um, things that we're we're actively uh, participating in are things like the Array of Things project. I keep using the word things, but I can't get away from it. Right, we're talking the IoT podcast. Here. It's okay, yes. <laughs> but um, the Array of Things project is happening here in Chicago, and uh, the city of Chicago, 
University of Chicago, Argonne National Labs, um, all received a $3.1 million grant from the National Science Foundation to put 500 nodes around the city of Chicago so we can monitor things like air quality, the amount of people in an area. So, and it's not, it, this is not a surveillance thing. And it's, that is not anything we're interested in. What we're interested in, though, is, is traffic levels in an area because that could impart, um, you know, what's happening with the commercial real estate. Um, you know, if, if you see traffic levels go down, there might be an issue in that area that could uh, be improved upon to improve the commercial real estate space or the residential space even. But in participating in the, in the Array of Things project, the way we are approaching this entire space is if we think of the home as a cell, right now there's nothing in the home that allows for homeostasis, self-regulating as you have in a cell for biology, you know, you the eukaryotes that have the nucleus, right, that has self-regulation. So if you think about that, you've got the home, a cell. As you work, those homes work together and you have an aggregate of data, you start to build tissue, right? Commercial buildings then become like organs and the city itself becomes like a body. So you have this organic living, breathing thing. And this is, this is already happening. These things are organic, but we don't have any insight into their performance. So we can't make improvements upon what's happening already. And that's what we want to do is, is help build that. So uh, communities can take action to improve upon their quality of life and homeowners can do the same thing. And our members can be a big part of that. Okay. So you start with data about environmental quality. Mm -hmm. And then the next step though, once you have this data is taking action. Mm -hmm. Are you guys, or is the array of things project kind of t going that next step or is it yeah. just, okay. So what are, how does that look or what does that well, look like? So, so what the array of things project will mean is open data. Um, so app developers can build upon that. So the data coming off of these devices will be in a repository at the city of Chicago site. So people can take that data and start building apps that can tell you about the best path to walk if you have asthma or, um, you know, what's the, how quickly is standing water being taken care of in a city or what are the traffic patterns like on, uh, July versus December in Chicago, and what I should mention about that project, though, not only are they, they, they looking at Chicago, they have 15 partner cities around the globe who are also going to do the same thing, uh, put these devices up. So, And so what we're hoping is with our little project we've been doing, we, we're calling it Rosetta Home. Uh, and I know I'd given you some screenshots when we, we talked about it last time about what that looks like with CO2 monitoring and temperature and humidity and, and, uh, and energy monitoring. But we want that to be, you know, that to be a, a place of action for these homeowners and for the community itself. Okay. And I think that's a really important kind of thing to think about. And I, I'll be curious to see how homeowners and even realtors kind of take action because it's one thing. So to, yeah. To say, Hey, here's an informative app that says, mm -hmm. Oh, this is happening. And then there's things that allow you to take action. And then there's individual action. And then there's the collective, like, let's make it better action. Yeah. And I think, you know, for us, our members, you know, the, the value to our membership here is that they have a relationship with that homeowner outside the transaction, right? So they're able to work with that homeowner and, and be a partner in the ownership of that home. And the value is, you know, they, they've got a relationship that they've formed and, and that nat naturally becomes a, a lead generator. But also when that house comes back on the market in seven years, that homeowner is going to work with that realtor. And when they work with that realtor, all the things that can become gotchas 
over the process of owning a home, things like mold you didn't know you had because you weren't monitoring that humidity or particulate matter that could cause you know, a, a child to have a hard time breathing or has respiratory issues. Those are things that you've worked with that homeowner to help mitigate. So when it goes on market, that's less time you have to spend on dealing with those issues. So it becomes a, a proactive uh, type thing between the homeowner and the realtor. And will we ever see sensor data as part of MLS listings? Well, so that's the, the Rosetta Home project we worked on is exactly that. We built that over a course of a few weeks. We took it to our standards body in real estate is called RESO, the Real Estate Standards Organization. I'm a board member. And I took my team down there, Chris Cote, who's our lead lab engineer, and Dave Conroy, who's our lab engineer. And the three of us went down there and we presented what we'd done, which is where we took a listing. And if you think about listings right now, they're static. They're essentially what you had in the listing books before we had the internet. Why not make that dynamic? Why not have that information accessible uh, to to buyers? You know, and, and we think that when a buyer is first moving into that process of, of going away from the home they own to this new home, and we give them a closing gift of this device with these sensors, that's an opportunity for them to then start moving down a path of, of corrective action on that home in a way that is informed. You know, um, they know what to work on because they have that data. We've had a few MLSs talk to us about including that data in their listings. Okay. Now, I wouldn't want my actual data to show. I'd have to have like the previous right. 30 days because... Yeah, it would be aggregated. You don't want to, you know, I, you don't want to be able to see certain patterns like CO2 patterns. You know, if you had CO2 patterns listed on a, on a regular basis, uh, an hourly basis, somebody could look at that and say, oh, I know when they're not home. Right. Why don't we break into their house then? We do not want that, of course. Uh, so that's, yeah, it would have to be an aggregated type of data. Yes. I'm always stunned. I'm like, wow, you can totally tell when people in my house are taking a shower. <laughs> the humidity goes way up. Yeah. It's stunning. Yeah. Uh, okay. So because you are so associated with the real estate market and everyone loves thinking about the value of their home, or at least that's what everybody I know loves talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk, let's play a fun game of, well, it's not really a game. I don't have a clever title for you, but what won't exist in homes of tomorrow. So I think about this all the time because because of my job, because I'm weird. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to throw it out there. I think keys keys are probably something we won't have like a decade uh, from now. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what, what are you thinking we might do away with? Yeah. So I gave a talk at a conference uh, about a month ago where I talked about, it was called five mind blowing technologies, but it was really about what our home would look like in 2026. Things I don't think are going to exist uh, in 2026 are things like the, the thermostat on the wall. I think that within our homes, we're going to have sensing technology integrated into the walls. So you could see temperature and humidity all up and down that wall, as well as uh, air quality sensors built into that. So you can get a good sense of what's happening in a room and water sensors too. I mean, if you have a leak behind your wall. I've had that. Yeah. So what if a wall could change color where there's a leak in a way that's, and it also does. alert you. Yeah. <laughs> it turns well, black I, with mildew. <laughs> you're right. You're right. But it takes, it takes some time. So what if in, as soon as that leak happens, you were able to be informed upon, you know, at your dev whatever device, I don't want to limit it to a phone uh, with the wearables coming out, but whatever device you're wearing, what if you could receive an alert on that? And that's the beauty of, uh, that's the beauty of this technology. I think drywall will have sensors built into it, your windows. I imagine a, a future, Stacey, where as you update your home, the listing is updated with data from those devices you're putting in your home. You know, there's a there's a commercial 
uh, concept called building information modeling. I think that's going to come to the residential market and it's going to be informed by these smart devices we're putting in our homes. I think you're going to have less and less dongles. You know, I've talked to people who've worked at beacon companies and they talk about beacons and what they can do. And the beacons now are these, these uh, little rocks or what have you devices that are freestanding. But I think beacon technology is going to be built in things like your, your lights or um, outlets, whatever else, you know, uh, wall fixtures. So I think it's the world we interact with will become less obvious in the home. You know what I mean? By it's not visual. You don't see the thermostat on the wall anymore. I would, I would love that. I would also yeah. love for my power outlets to go away, but I think we're a little far off from that. Yeah. Tesla. What, what happened to Tesla's hopes and aspirations? You know, I believe no one wants their brain fried just yet. <laughs> We're working on it eventually. <laughs> so here's a, here's the thought, because this is something I think about. What about light switches? Because yeah. there's, there's an inherent, I, I actually had a designer on the show a couple of weeks ago and he got me really, I was really, was Scott Jensen. Um, and he was talking about, you know, different types of lighting, having <laughs> like ambient lighting at the floor levels versus our overhead lighting. And I was really fascinated by thinking about like, Oh, yeah, why limit lighting to like overhead lights? That's just just yeah. so boring. Hugh has what that light strip? Yes. Uh so that allows you to do uh different places there and they have the bloom I think it's called as well. So I mean, you know, and 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 um I, I agree with you. I don't I don't think it's going to be limited just to the fixtures above your head. I I in fact there, there was a really interesting concept out of the University of Cincinnati, the Do- Novel Devices group over there. They had office, and this was in the office, but I could see it working in the home as well, where it harvests the sun's light and broadcasts it throughout the the office. So you don't have that fluorescent light, but you're actually using sunlight to create lighting in the home. So it's a very passive type of lighting that isn't uh, "Quote unquote smart," but it could be controlled with a you know a, a baffle of sorts. So you can you could you could have it be brighter and darker based on uh, that natural light. But I think the integration of uh, smart devices into lighting will lead to things like you know sad mitigation, uh, the seasonal affective disorder, and it's, that's already happening with the hue. But I think that you could have a a sad room, as it were, almost like a safe room of types that 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 helps you emotion. I know it sounds really silly for me to say it that <laughs> I'm way. I'm like, wow, I'm gonna be in the sad room. I know, <laughs> which is the exact opposite of sad. There's so many there are so many things I want to take back in that statement. <laughs> you're you're actually you have a room that's going to help you be happy. Uh, ha- we'll call it a happy room anyway. But th- I think um, there's so many opportunities for light to to be more natural and more surrounding and not feel like it's coming. It's just one direction. I think there's a lot happening in that space. Let me go with like a super controversial prediction because I am okay. really interested in this idea. Please. Um, it feels kind of dystopian though. Good. I'm going to warn everybody. Here it goes. <laughs> this is less for somewhere like the US, but more for a place like China where, you know, a... Density is important. City, mm-hmm. the cities are just jam packed full of people, but also where, you know, air quality is very low. Yep. So what about this idea that with TVs and, you know, 4K and soon to be 8K, what about we lose windows, which actually makes buildings very interesting. And so yeah. when you think about like lighting that can be delivered via LEDs and can prevent, you know, seasonal affective disorder yeah. and being able to project whatever image you want on a screen. Yep. I don't know. Is that crazy? Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think it's not. Uh, in fact, our lab, uh, we have no windows. Uh, we, we have glass that is out to a hallway and I often think about that. I mean, you can make an experiential 
uh, something very experiential. Like you, you, you know, there might be a place you love to visit. Maybe it's, you know, I loved Florence. Maybe I have Florence projected on a wall, you know, and it, and it has that natural light color where it feels like I'm sitting in a conference room with a large window uh, on it. And that, that can affect you. I mean, I, you know, we think about office productivity and about, about smart technologies. I, there's a, the center for the built environment, uh, Ed Ahrens and his team, David Lehrer out in Berkeley, they've been looking at office productivity and uh, comfort levels in the office and they've come down to it being behavioral. Uh, in fact, they talk about heating and cooling and how much energy you waste trying to cool or heat an entire room. And they've come down to having products. They actually have something called the hyper chair, which is an office chair that has fans and heating and cooling elements in it. And you can control your comfort locally at that space, you know? And I think, I think, you know, that I kind of veered off there, but I think that window you're talking about or that, that led technology that, that fits along. It's the same type of thing. You're, you're dealing with someone who has a personal preference, you know? And I, I think you can have some really interesting, I mean, you, as you get to these micro units in smaller places, you, you start to have less and less opportunities to have light come in naturally. And so what can you do to, to offset that and make that uh, a pleasing environment? There was actually a show called Black Mirror. Have you seen anything? Okay, I have. I have. And that's what I, I, I picture the guys was, riding the bikes. Yeah. And- yeah, exactly. That's, that's, I was thinking about that as well. But I like to think less dystopian with respect to that. I, I'm hopeful. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm pretty hopeful for the, the quality it could bring to life. Because, yeah, you're right. I mean, it could be very, very lonely. You know, um, there, there is a possibility of that. So what about, let's, let's go, because we brought up Black Mirror. So in, in the episode that we're thinking of, and I can't remember the title of it, but no, they, they had to ride stationary bikes people for energy. to generate yeah. energy. And yeah. one thing that I think about a lot with the smart home and a lot of these technologies is that we, we are probably going to consume more energy because we have more devices set to consume energy. Mm. And there are energy saving things out there, but what yeah. are you kind of working on? You know, with the idea that, hey, yes, we are adding more stuff to our wall outlets, but what are we doing to actually save energy with this stuff? Yeah, you know, there are some really interesting things happening in the what, what's called the energy harvesting space. Uh, University of Michigan has a group called Lab 11 and a, and a gentleman named Prabal Dutta. It's his group. They have a lot of smaller devices. And actually, when I talked about having sensors inside the walls, they have a something called smart dust to these computers that are about the size of a grain of sand. And you can have an array of them that mesh and they have different sensors in them. But they are working on a lot of different types of energy harvesting technologies, solar panels that harvest energy from the light above you, radio wave harvesting uh, technologies uh, so that those those devices are self-powering. But I think energy harvesting is the is what's going to happen for those devices. And that's something I'm very interested in. You know, I talked about beaconing technology earlier and you have the limit of the battery. So as you deploy more and more sensing technology around a city, what if it could be responsible for its own energy? Uh, solar panels, I, I don't think the array of things, they're going to have solar panels just yet, but I can imagine the future where those devices could be powered by solar as it becomes cheaper uh, for those devices to be produced. And yes, actually, Kevin and I on a couple, actually right after CES, we had, we talked about ARM has shown off some of the the smart dust kind of moats. And this was a tiny little chip that had like Basically, I can't remember the ARM processor name, but it was like it fit on the edge of my fingertip. Kevin and I were kind of puzzling out different things we could use it for. And I should have thought about powering wallpaper because it's solar powered. And we were like, you can't swallow it. We were talking about using it as like blood pressure in the eyes. But if you think about sticking it, you know, in a wallpaper kind of setting with natural light. 
So this room might have windows. That's really interesting. Or, you know, there are others that could be powered by temperature change is really kind of an interesting yep. option. So yeah, super uh, fun. Yeah, I mentioned the uh, University of Michigan. They actually had a research project where they had this um, this little Bluetooth connected device that sat on the on the pipe of a shower head, and you could tell uh, how much hot water the home was using because it would heat up to a specific point, and it would fire off. It used a it had a capacitor in it. It would fire off, and said, you know, give you a sense of the temperature for that uh, that shower, so you know how much hot water you were using. Very interesting little research project they were doing with that. So, yeah, but I think you know, as you know, Moore's law being being what it is, and and things like the Pi Zero coming out and chip and and all that, the cost of this stuff is coming down uh, pretty greatly. Um, so I think in uh, Pi Three coming out, uh, you know, with uh, the Bluetooth connection now, as of today, so that all is pretty exciting to me. I mean, we're seeing cheaper and cheaper. And the work that Adafruit's doing with their their IoT uh, educational arm, I think there's a lot of opportunity in this market. All right. So what is the one thing that you're hoping to install in your home like this month, this year? I don't know. I'm really very interested in voice and, and what that's going to mean for our home. And so we don't have an echo in our home. Um, you know, I've looked at what Josh.ai is doing over at JSTAR, what they're mm-hmm. doing over there. I'm very interested in voice interaction. And actually, as voice interaction comes on, I'm interested in voice recognition, not just the the, the voice interaction. So if I have the Amazon Echo, I'm not going to tie it to Prime in my home because I have two kids who love, they love certain shows and, and I don't want them ordering specific shows on there. But um, as it uh, moves forward, I, I'm very interested in having voice uh, and what that's going to mean for the home. I mean, people with disabilities and, and the elderly, uh, what it means for them to control their home and, and have the settings match where they're, where they're interested. So voices for me. Got it. All right. Well, Chad, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. I really sure. appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thank you so much. That concludes this week's show. And thanks for listening to the Internet of Things podcast. 